Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice based here in New York City. It's a new year, and now I have two new guests with me who are ready to share their take on the market. A quick reminder that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to our first guest, Dan Laurie who's a principal at SK Capital Partners. Glad to have you here, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Todd. Yeah. Next, I'd like to welcome Steve Hunter, a managing director at TM Capital. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Todd. I'd like to say your your events, Zoom events you've done during COVID, I think have kept a lot of us sane. So thank you for doing them. All right. Always always love the feedback. so I'm certainly anticipating this is going to be a great conversation, knowing both of you and, and your firms. So let's start off with some quick intros. Uh, Dan, again, is principal at SK Capital Partners. Maybe you can tell our listeners about your firm and what your day-to-day looks like. Sure. So uh, SK Capital, um, obviously a private equity firm. Uh, we're sector-focused, so we invest 100% into the chemicals, uh, materials, and pharmaceutical markets. and. Um, we have an investment team and an operational team uh, that have decades of ex- of chemicals experience. So live, eat, sleep, breathe uh, the chemicals industry. Um, so it gives us a unique angle, I think, in a competitive market. Um, almost allows us to act like a kind of a $14 billion uh, chemicals um, company and a strategic buyer to a certain extent. Um, our Our firm is focused on two strategies. Uh, we have a kind of a middle to upper middle market strategy and a uh, lower middle market strategy. Uh, so we're size agnostic in the chemical industry. Um, I'm focused on our lower middle market strategy, which we launched in 2019. Um, since then, we've we've acquired five platforms. So from a day-to-day basis, uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, working with the management teams and integrating those platforms, uh, executing add-ons, and then... Um, uh, helping the management team also execute company-specific projects, you know, such as sales, leasebacks, dividend recaps, um, all the things that I think a private equity firm looks to do in the first year or two of uh, ownership. So, in addition to that, you know, spend a lot of time reviewing new opportunities in the in the busy market, as well as uh, talking with industry folks um, in the chem- chemicals industry and people like yourself and Steve. Yep. All right. You're certainly a busy man, so we appreciate your time. Uh, Steve is a uh, managing director at TM Capital. Maybe you could share with our listeners a little bit about your company and your role there. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Todd. Um, TM Capital is a partner-owned mergers and acquisition boutique. Uh, we were founded in 1989, so we've been around you know a little over 30 years at this point. We've got uh, 46 employees in three different offices. Uh, we were founded in New York. Uh, we have a Boston office, and we also have an Atlanta office. Um, we, uh, last year was a record year for us. We closed 35 deals, uh, which was a, by far and away a, a record for us, um, in terms of number of deals closed in a year. Our business is pretty, uh, evenly split between representing private equity firms, uh, like Dan and, uh, founders and families, 
that that own businesses that that need to find a, a capital solution or liquidity. Uh, about 30% of our deals are cross-border, and that number has been growing. Uh, honestly, I was a little surprised at that, given that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, but that number seems to creep up with each year. Uh, the majority of our work is where we're representing the seller in a transaction, mostly sell-side, uh, but we do do some financing as well. Uh, each year, we'll, we'll complete a couple different financings, uh, either minority equity or debt financings. Um, our work is really focused in five primary industry groups, uh, industrials, consumer, business services, which also includes uh, technology services, chemicals, and healthcare. Um, within TM, I lead our sponsor coverage effort, which is uh, in my role, I basically manage and coordinate all of our interaction with private equity firms. I joined about five years ago. Um, and really, at that time, TM was starting to do more and more work with private equity firms, and we were growing as a firm, and, and the firm really needed somebody to help coordinate all of our activities with private equity so that the, uh, the partners in one office knew what the partners in the other, other office were doing, and so that we were really being smart about how to uh, attack the private equity world. So that's a little bit about me, um, and really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, listen, Steve. We know you're a busy man, and you're you're actually calling in uh, to our podcast from from the road. So thanks for carving out some time. So I'm going to toss the uh, first question out to Dan, and then we'll have uh, Steve jump in afterwards. But Dan, I know your firm targets the specialty uh, materials, chemicals, and pharmaceutical sectors, as you just told us. So I guess a two part question. Maybe you can talk about the level of activity in these sectors over the last year. And then briefly kind of touch on how those same sectors have been impacted by supply chain issues. Yeah, sure. So um, th those target sectors you mentioned represent a $4 trillion industry uh, globally. So um, a lot of activity, I guess, regardless of the year. But I would say last year, we, depending on whose uh, information you look at, it's either near record levels or um, above record levels. So. You know, I think we had a, a perfect storm last year of, of drivers influencing that activity. Um, you know, you had financing markets were wide open. You had the threat of capital gains regulation change, which ultimately didn't come to fruition. Uh, you had some, some sellers opportunistically taking advantage of uh, some, some COVID inflated earnings um, and selling on a higher earnings base, as well as a lot of PE dry powder, um, you know, which I think was pent up from a uh, relatively low activity year in 2020. Uh, so activity, I think, remains strong, was strong last year, should be strong in 2022. Um, as far as supply chain disruption, uh, I think 2021 will look back uh, as the year of, of su supply chain disruption. Um, started the year off with the Southern freeze uh, in the Southern US. And then hurricanes and transportation and labor shortages, as well as just COVID running rampant through uh, certain facilities at certain times of the year, uh, create a lot of disruption. Um, I would commend our management teams for navigating through that, but uh, it's also created a little bit of an opportunity for companies, I think, that were well positioned uh, and able to respond quickly. Um, so it, it it, it is a, a, I guess, a blessing and a curse to have that sort of disruption. Um, on the M&A front, I think we're seeing it create uh, more noise in an earnings base. And it, it's been difficult, I'd say, over the last year to really truly nail down kind of a recurring earnings base. Um, but 
That said, I think the environment has been so competitive uh, that a lot of buyers have either overlooked that or found creative ways to deal with um, an earnings base that was a little bit uh, uh, in flux given the disruption. Pretty interesting. Steve, you care to add anything there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would I would completely agree the the levels of activity uh, in 2021 were were off the charts. I mean, at times I would say the the activity level was very very unsustainable. And I mean, there were points points last summer where we were working on a number of deals that we've never seen before, and it was hard just to even handle staffing and and getting everything done that needed to get done. I think things have of maybe it's just because of the holidays, but obviously things. We, a lot of things closed at the end of the year, which took a lot off our plate. Uh, you know, the pitch activity was still good through last year. So we have a really nice backlog going into this year, but I would say it's, uh, it's not the crazy, uh, you know, 120% of capacity levels that we were seeing last year. In terms of the, the effects on um, the industries that we work in, I'd say there were three major impacts that we saw. One was obviously the, the tremendous acceleration in online e-commerce. We, uh, we've done a lot of work with some very dynamic direct-to-consumer e-commerce businesses. My, my partner, Phil Krieger, has done some really great work there, and we've continued to see uh, really interesting businesses pop up and go from very small to significantly, uh, you know, to being significant businesses in a very short period of time. Um, the second, I would say, is uh, the, the, the pandemic has really shifted people's focus to uh, you know, the, the home and the backyard. So a lot of building products, companies, uh, back, companies that are focused on things like decks and, and pools and uh, outdoor landscaping, lighting for the backyard have just, have just gone through the roof. You know, everybody's sitting around their house thinking of all the things that they would like to improve and, and they can get those materials and work outside. And, and those are things that can get done during the pandemic. And, and a lot of that's been happening. And I'd say the last one on, on the healthcare front, we, we saw, we've always done a lot of work in medical devices and diagnostics, but the, the emphasis on diagnostic um, medical devices and diagnostic medical equipment and testing has just really accelerated with the pandemic. Everyone's looking for different methods and technologies to be able to, to do testing uh, either remotely or testing for COVID and all those types of different things. So we've seen a, a, a dramatic increase in interest in the diagnostic sector. All right, pretty good insight from both of you. Thanks. Uh, let's let's pivot here, uh, Steve. I'm going to start with you this time, and then we'll go to Dan. Uh, perhaps each of you could talk about the impact inflation may have, or really has had so far, on private equity deals, and and how you think it will impact deals in 2022. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll uh, I'll give you a couple that we've seen recently. Um, I mean, I think the first thing, and and uh, I think I think Dan touched on it. You know, the, one of the problems with inflation, and you always hear, you know, policymakers and economists talk about this, is I think just the uncertainty that it throws into everything. You don't know what what prices are going to be like. You know, in in a month or a quarter or a year, it makes budgeting hard. It makes, uh, you know, planning for revenues and expenses hard. So that, you know, that's one really bad thing about inflation. On the on the positive side, you know, we saw a lot of companies who went really heavy on inventory. Uh, early in the pandemic, and as prices appreciated, you know they they were able to enjoy the benefits of those. A lot of times, when we were selling businesses, one of the biggest hurdles we had to overcome was trying to convince the buyer that there wasn't just a big inventory profit that had run through the business. That you know the pricing and the cost levels were sustainable, and that you know it wasn't just a big one-time positive COVID blip. 
um, that they were having. On on the negative side, you know, a little bit of supply chain I think has contributed to this as well. But we've seen a lot of companies, specifically installers of building products, whether um, more often than not in like a multifamily or commercial setting, where they'll bid a job, they'll uh, they'll get a quote from their vendor for uh, say flooring or carpet or or something that's being installed. And when the customer finally comes ready to get the job done, um, our client, the contractor, all of a sudden has the cost of their product um, is gone way up. Uh, their vendors are no longer honoring the agreements for pricing that was quoted six months ago. And all of a sudden, every job that our client has, uh, the profitability is much less than what they thought it was going to be when they quoted it and when they uh, accepted it. So we've had a couple different transactions where we've had to put the transaction on hold until the client can either work through some price increases or try to work out things with their vendors uh, to get better better prices on the on the products they're installing. But I'd say just the overall uncertainty uh, is probably the biggest negative. Um, and and I think hopefully the Fed will be able to get get it under control because I think it really just it just makes things very unsettled. Yeah, well, good color, and I you know I know from past. Uh podcast episodes, the uh, the examples and case studies are always helpful. So thanks for those. Dan, you care to uh, elaborate here? Uh, yeah, sure. I think, I think Steve nailed it. Um, the only thing I would, I would add that we're just keeping our eye on and, and Steve started to allude to it is just the, any interest rate hikes that are, I guess, coming over the next year or so. Um, you know, I, interest rates have been so low for so long that I think it's been advantageous for the private equity world, um, just the M&A world in general. Uh, so there's probably some room for, uh, you know, modest interest rate hikes. But um, you know, as Steve alluded to, any larger hikes or or un, uh, unexpected interest rate hikes uh, just create uncertainty. Uh, could impact valuations, or at least could cause um, some sellers to pause on uh, putting their business for sale until. Uh, there's a little bit more clarity. All right, appreciate that, Dan. Next, I'd like to turn it over to our coffee break guest, Ryan Guthrie. Ryan is BDO's national leader of private equity advisory services and is based in BDO's Costa Mesa office out in California. Let's hear what Ryan has to say. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Guthrie, national practice leader of transaction advisory services and partner champion for advisory services to private equity for BDO. I'm excited to talk today about BDO's revamped approach to servicing our M&A clients, which we have branded in the marketplace our M&A-powered platform. BDO's M&A-powered platform is our playbook for delivering the firm's services across the M&A lifecycle with the goal of bringing the power of the firm's resources and expertise together in a holistic and highly coordinated way in order to maximize the outcome of our clients' M&A transactions. At BDO, we've identified six distinct stages of the transaction lifecycle, these being one, strategy, two, assessment and due diligence, three, integration and implementation, four, organizational transformation, five, performance improvement, and six, exit and divestiture. The focus and collection of services within the M&A Power Platform provides a full suite of M&A support across these stages pre- and post-transaction for private equity firm clients. For pre-deal or pre-transaction activities, we provide acquisition advisory supporting client strategy through comprehensive preparation and planning 
in addition to a full suite of pre-deal implementation assessments, valuation work, regulatory contract support, and human capital management considerations. In due diligence, our work goes well beyond quality of earnings. Our unique quality of business approach takes a broad look at the entire business being acquired or sold and across the spectrum of financial, tax, operational, IT, HR, and insurance-related issues. This is driven by deep analytics and focused on determining true value while identifying hidden opportunities. The goal of our quality of business assessment is to provide better visibility into deal-related data, allowing our M&A clients to move faster to close with greater confidence and actionable insights post-transaction. Following the transaction or post-deal, we help our clients achieve their investment thesis with delivery of services that yield value creation. Our services in this area enhance organizational structure and effectiveness, revenue optimization, and the realization of cost synergies. We operate in both healthy and distressed environments, but in any case, we have the ultimate goal of assisting PE clients in achieving a successful hold period while preparing to maximize the outcome of the exit. With the decision to exit an investment made, BDO can provide exit readiness assessments, equity and compensation planning, as well as investment banking services. Can help ensure all applicable regulatory requirements are met at the time of a sale, IPO, or DSPAC transaction, and support throughout the exit, including tax structuring, sell-side due diligence, drafting of transition service agreements, as well as post-transaction financial and accounting support. So whether a client needs support at one stage of the deal lifecycle or at every stage, BDO's M&A-powered platform provides a one-stop, holistic solution to maximize the success of PE activity. Thanks, Ryan. Now let's resume to our conversation with Dan Laurie and Steve Hunter. All right, guys, let's kick off the second half talking about M&A funds. Steve, we'll start with you. According to Refinitiv data, the overall value of M&A stood at 5.8 trillion in 2021, which was up about 64% from a year earlier. So my question, how is this affecting fundraising and what are some expectations for the pace of private equity M&A in 2022? Thanks, Todd. Um, I would say, you know, as we're meeting with private equity funds, I think the thing that is really interesting is that historically, you know, these were 10-year funds and the funds would invest the money over five years and then harvest it over five years. And so, you know, fundraising was sort of a, you know, not something you did all the time. It was more um, you know, episodic after every five, you know, after five years, you'd start thinking about your next fund or, or some period of time. I think now what's interesting is, is the velocity of these, of, of the capital being put to work has, has increased dramatically. So these funds have all done really well. They're investing the money much more quickly than they had historically. Um, they return money to the limited partners. Uh, the limited partners turn around and want to give it back to them in terms of a new fund. And so we're seeing the the fund life seems more like three years. I mean, we'll we'll have funds that raise a new fund. They'll have, you know, half or 60% of it invested after 18 months or 24 months. They're already starting to look towards raising the next fund. It's usually bigger than the prior fund. For a lot of these funds, fundraising has gone from being, you know, something you did every now and then to something that's sort of constantly going on. You're either you're either fundraising or you're preparing to fundraise. I think the other thing that's been really interesting that we've seen is uh, 
a lot of the smaller private equity firms as they've grown have tried to emulate you know what people think of as kind of the uh, the Carlyle Group, Blackstone, Apollo model, where they they start to think of themselves more as asset managers and they start to raise other funds. So, um, you know, a bigger fund will raise a lower middle market fund to go after smaller deals that they're seeing and like but can't do. Uh, they'll raise a non-control fund where they can do deals where they're not taking control; they're just sort of funding minority recap transactions. Um, others will do mezzanine funds that'll be either captive to their own deals or, or outside and are doing, you know, other sponsored deals or even unsponsored deals. So I feel like the, uh, the, the, the pace of uh, fundraising has just really accelerated the last several years. Most, most funds seem to have people that are full-time dedicated to doing nothing but uh, managing limited partners and fundraising. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't agree more with, with, with all the color. I'm just shocked at how uh, quickly our clients are, are, are putting capital to work. And, you know, I too do uh, feel like everyone's always fundraising. So good, good to get that insight. Uh, Dan, I guess pivoting to you, how are you seeing funds prepare for this pace of activity? Yeah, I think um, all, all of the stuff Steve mentioned is obviously creating more and more um, dollars to put to work in the private equity world. Uh, so there, there's a lot more activity. Um, I think we're, we're starting to see, and we're doing this uh, ourselves as well, is, is firms kind of uh, start to, to look at ways that they can gain a competitive advantage in, in, uh, in the market. Uh, whether that be getting up to speed sooner uh, in a broader sale process or engaging with uh, sector experts um, to target a certain market. But I think we're starting to see folks as they have more dollars to put to work and the, the environment to get more competitive, uh, picking and choosing deals uh, or picking and choosing sectors. And then when they have that target sector uh, being really aggressive. Gotcha, appreciate that. Well, let's shift gears here just a little bit. When it comes to potential sellers, who are you targeting these days and what's the mix between strategic and financial buyers and deals look like? I guess, Steve, will let's have you take it first and then I'll flip it to Dan. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think from, from our standpoint, uh, I think we, we uh, approach our client base kind of from two different angles. I think on, on one hand, a lot of our business is very referral based. Uh, we get a lot of referrals from uh, attorneys that we've worked with, wealth management firms that we've worked with, prior clients, um, you know, just various sort of referral sources. Uh, and, you know, since we've been around for 32 years, you know, we, we just know a lot of people and a lot of deals uh, will we'll announce a deal and people will just reach out and, and call us. And so from that standpoint, a lot of times we'll get inbound deals that don't fit nicely into our industry groups. And, and we have to sort of figure out how to, how to address those. Um, on the industry group side, you know, we, we try to go out and really continue to build uh, depth and expertise in those industry groups, and I think as we've grown, it's it's uh, it's really worked well, and it's it's allowed us to be a little more focused in our in our business development efforts, especially as it as it relates to targeting private equity businesses. You know, the uh, industry specialists. I mean, Dan, Dan and his firm are a perfect example. You know, unless you as the advisor are spending all of your time in his world, you know, uh, it doesn't make any sense to call on someone if they're an industry specialist and you're not uh, a specialist in their industry. So I think we've continued to see industry specialization be really, really important. It's, it's part of the reason we brought on, uh, we brought on a guy to, to set up a new chemicals vertical for us last year, you know, in, in, in healthcare, we're only targeting 
medical device uh, and, and medical device related businesses and some behavioral health uh, and services sectors because you know we haven't done much in healthcare IT uh, and other areas. So it really, I think as the market has grown and become more sophisticated, just industry expertise is, is more and more important. Um, on the buyer side, it's, um, you know, it's, it's been really interesting. I feel like a lot of companies have uh, obviously been hit hard and, and sort of paralyzed by the pandemic. Um, you know, some of the global companies, some of the bigger companies, maybe, you know, companies obviously in, in restaurants and hospitality and, and uh, travel have been hit really hard. Um, we've seen other companies seem to really go on the offensive. You know, I mentioned um, all the interest in the, in the building products and backyard and, and pool sector that we've seen. You know, we've seen companies be very, very aggressive and acquisitive in that market, um, you know, and, and they're viewing this as a really good chance to, to be aggressive and to buy up assets that they might not have been able to, uh, you know, to, to see or to, to buy um, prior to the pandemic. So I think, um, you know, we've seen some companies, it seems like they've really prospered. I mentioned earlier some of the online e-commerce businesses that, that have just really gone absolutely through the roof uh, during the pandemic. And it's it's an interesting contrast when you look at some of the old economy businesses that you know that have really been uh, set back by by COVID and the pandemic. Sure, makes a lot of sense. I guess Dan, how about you? How would you uh, say the breakdown is between PE sponsors, strategics, and founders? Yeah, I, uh, I guess in the chemicals world, um, and, and we we track this. I would say over the last seven or eight years, you would typically see sponsors accounting for kind of anywhere from mid-teens to up to 30% of M&A deals uh, in the chemicals industry, uh, depending on the year. Uh, last year was just shy of 40%. So wow. a record year from that aspect, um, which is it's probably likely reflective of the overall M&A market, but you're definitely seeing sponsors become more um, relevant uh, in the deal, the deal activity. Um, I say us and, and myself specifically focused on the lower middle market. We spend a lot of time with founders um, and entrepreneurs who are looking to move on, uh, either retire or, or do something else and uh, are looking to sell their business. Um, you know, Steve, Steve mentioned being sector specific is important. Uh, we find that is uh, that that resonates with at least chemical uh, founders and entrepreneurs and uh, they feel comfortable partnering with us. We offer uh, many times offer them the opportunity to roll over and participate in their next phase of growth. Um, so I think our strategy and, and the way we understand the industry and our operational focus uh, really resonates with them. So we do spend a lot of time and uh, partner with a lot of founder-owned businesses. One other thing that I would add in terms of the mix of, of buyers that we're seeing kind of across the board, you know, it, it, historically has really fluctuated a lot between, you know, 60% strategic and 40% financial and, and 40% strategic and 60% financial. You know, for us last year, it was almost exactly split down the middle. Um, you know, we, we saw a lot of strategics be really competitive. Uh, but as we've talked about all along, there's, there's so much private equity capital out there, uh, so much debt capital, cheap debt capital, you know, sponsors are being every bit as competitive as, as strategics in a lot of, a lot of these processes. Yeah. Good perspective. Appreciate that. Um, all right. Well, why don't we dive into some less financial topics related to uh, private equity? And uh, Dan, I'm going to start with you. Maybe you could talk about what the job market is like for PE and investment banking right now and what strategies perhaps uh, your firm is taking to attract talent. 
Uh, sure. Yeah. We, um, so it's, it's kind of similar to what we spoke about earlier. Um, you have increasing PE activities. Uh, I think private equity firms are doing more complex deals that requires more resources. Um, but I think year over year, you have a static uh, pool or a static universe of, of incoming candidates. So uh, it, it's, I would say it's still competitive for investment banking and PE positions, but I think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift in the market towards being a lesser amount of people uh, available for the jobs and, and a growing amount of available jobs. So, um, you know, at SK, we're constantly trying to think of new ways to get closer to candidates. Um, we, we've started to look at expanding beyond just hiring traditional investment banking candidates, uh, looking at consulting or other industries that have relevant skill sets that would make sense uh, in a private equity environment. Um, also, just not relying on the traditional recruiting process. Um, and that all goes back to, I think we're launching a few new things here at SK that will, that will get us closer to those candidates uh, earlier on in their careers. Um, I think the other major thing that you're seeing at SK as well as just across the industry broadly is the diversity initiative. Um, so we're, we're always rethinking our offering and our experience to be attractive and, and more inclusive to a broader, broader universe of uh, potential candidates. All right, Steve, maybe kind of the same topic. You can touch on recruitment and retention at your own firm. Yeah, you know, we're, we're a, as a smaller firm, you know, I think uh, not unlike what Dan was saying, we, we have to be a little non-traditional, I think, in, in our recruiting. We, uh, for our analysts, we generally, uh, we have a very robust uh, summer intern program where we um, recruit college students between kind of their junior and senior year uh, for the summer, and we give them you know, a really robust experience. I've, I've been at a lot of firms where you have interns and you just kind of sit around and don't get to do anything. We really put them to work and, and really try to figure out, are these people we'd like to have full time? And then what we try to do is we, you know, we try to hire as many of those uh, interns, if they, if they kind of pass the test, we try to hire as many of them as we can. Um, you know, this year, I think we've hired almost, we hired almost every one of our summer interns. Um, we either have, or are trying to hire all of them. Um, and, you know, so that kind of gives us the base of analysts that we, that we have every year. And, and, you know, we sort of flex that number up or down, depending on what we think is going to work. And then we do a lot of lateral hiring. So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll try to recruit people from, uh, the accounting firms, uh, quality of earnings shops, uh, Todd, I don't think we've poached any, anybody from you guys yet, but we, I was you know, just going to interrupt you and say, is that recruiting or poaching? I'm glad you uh, said it first. <laughs> you know, the, the, we do a good job of training our people, but we also like to get people that are very well trained from, uh, from other, you know, good, good places like, uh, like BDO and others, but right. you know, we've had good luck with, we'd had good luck with that as well. We'll probably be a little more open to looking at people with a non-traditional background because of, uh, you know, what we don't want to do is just try to compete by just throwing money at the problem. Cause you know, we, we have a hard time competing with some of the crazy numbers the, the big bulge bracket firms are, are throwing around uh, at this point in time. I think we're also, you know, the fact that we are, that we have an office in New York, but we also have an office in Boston and, and even more so in Atlanta, they're just a little less competitive from a recruiting standpoint. If you can find someone and uh, get them hired, there's just not as many people that are trying to poach them as there might be in, in a New York, uh, in a New York office. Um, and, you know, and, and on the on the diversity issue, I feel like that's really become something where, uh, you know, it was something people were trying to do 
because they felt like it was the right thing. You know, now I think it's really, in addition to that, it's become really a competitive issue. One of the things I've always really liked about the financial services industry is, is people are, I think, tend to be much more focused on, you know, they don't care who you are or where you're from or what you look like. If they want to know, can you do the work and are you reliable? And I think we've, we've really, uh, uh, tried hard to to kind of uh, expand our horizons as well. We've we've done a couple of very non traditional hires um, lately, and I think they've paid off really well for us. Awesome, awesome. All right, well let's uh, let's broach the topic of ESG. Why don't we? So Dan, I'll start with you. To what extent are you and your firm seeing private equity adopt ESG initiatives, and maybe touch on something? Uh, or, or certain areas where your your firm is uh, currently focused? Over the last year or, or so, I, I, this has probably been become the biggest initiative across uh, the chemicals industry. Um, I think we're getting questions and, and speaking with investors, lenders, customers, suppliers, employees, everyone's focused on it. Um, and it really, you know, ESG means different things to different companies, depending on you know, where you are in the supply chain and um, what industry you're in. But um, generally, I think it's a it's becoming something that you're seeing uh, large corporates adopt, uh, I guess, with with more rigor, just given the amount of resources they have. And they're further along with that and kind of the smaller uh, companies um, trailing behind to a certain extent, just because they don't have the uh, resources to dedicate to it, but everyone I think is starting to um, start that engine in one sh- one way, shape, or form. So, you know, at SK, we've um, it's important to our our investors that we have a a strategy. It's important to us, um, just as corporate stewards. We've developed core areas of sustainability and ESG that uh, we guide our portfolio companies to adhere to, um, and then then it's kind of specifically. Uh, customized to to each portfolio company, but you know, generally when we buy a, a smaller company, we start kind of with the low hanging fruit, and this would be a company that doesn't have something in place currently, um, and that just you know, low hanging fruit could be just measuring energy usage or um, waste usage, something really easy to do. Um, that's uh, that can be done by uh, someone at the company that uh, that. Uh, we don't have to go out um, and hire a lot of resources for. And what that does, you, you just improve your waste. And if you focus on it, you improve your emissions, you get higher yields. Um, there's a value aspect to it too. It, it creates a better earnings base uh, for your companies. And one of the other things we focus a lot on is, is right out of the gate is implementing safety programs. Um, something that we're, we're really focused on as a firm. Um, and generally, our CEOs of our companies are extremely focused on as well. So, um, I think you're going to start seeing um, more and more companies that do not have these programs uh, or are not focused on ESG treated like you know underinvested assets, for lack of a better term. Um, it may make them less attractive in, in a sale environment, or just result in kind of a corresponding decrease to to valuation as whoever the buyer is, is going to have to put in these programs and spend the dollars to do it. Yeah, certainly sounds like uh, great progress. So uh, kudos to you and SK. Uh, Steve, maybe you can uh, touch on what you see as some some of the, the nearer and uh, longer term challenges with PE adopting ESG. 
Yeah, sure. I think that uh, one of the really interesting things that we've seen is that you know there there's been, especially earlier, maybe uh, two three years ago, there was a lot of capital raised. You know, very large funds. I feel like this effort was really being driven kind of from the top down in terms of large funds, and then it, now it's pushing down into the middle market and lower middle market. But you know, there were a lot of of multi hundred million dollar, even billion dollar funds raised to have a real ESG focus and nobody really knew what that meant. And so you would, uh, you would be working with businesses and, and showing them to firms. And sometimes they'd say it fits, you know, it fits our ESG mandate. And other times they would say it didn't, I think a really interesting one that, that we were working on was uh, we were working with a very large crane rental and crane services business, you know, very heavy industrial business, CapEx heavy, but their primary market was they dominated the market for installing and uh, erecting and maintaining wind towers. So, you know, that business went from being kind of a fairly dirty, heavy industrial business that, you know, you wouldn't think would be an ESG business to all of a sudden, a lot of these funds were really excited about it because the, you know, the, the primary end market is serving wind and alternative energy. So I think that was an interesting example of how People are sort of figuring this out on the fly. You know, what does it what does it mean to try to have an ESG investing strategy? Yeah, oh, well, we we we've certainly been having a, a lot of interesting conversations internally, uh, as well as with our, our clients and contacts. So uh, appreciate both of you there. Um, well, we've actually reached the last question of the day, and I'm a little bummed because uh, you guys have been. Uh, sharing a ton of great info, and I'm sure our listeners are going to uh, appreciate that. So. Uh, the last topic is uh, one of our classic, uh, call it crystal ball type questions. Uh, and Steve, we'll go to you first and then Dan. Uh, how has the relationship between investment bankers and private equity professionals grown and really changed over the past year? And then maybe touch on what you expect it to look like in the next 12 months. Yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I'll take that one. I, uh, it's interesting to answer that question, I'm just wrapping up uh, three days of, of nonstop meetings with private equity firms at, a, at an event. So uh, this, this topic is very uh, top of mind for me. You know, I think that the, the extreme competitive environment that, that everyone's operating in, um, in terms of trying to, to compete for deals, is, is having a couple different effects on, on the relationship. I think, number one, it is, it's really showing what firms um, have, have a, uh, a, a very well thought out business development strategy and have hired people on the business development side of, uh, of private equity to go out and help them try to find deals. And, and a lot of firms do that, but I think there's a real mix of people that we see. You see people that on one hand are nothing more than sort of glorified marketing people that hand out brochures and and talk about what their deal criteria are. And then at the extreme other end of that, you see people you know, that we've built uh, you know, 10, 15 year relationships with that can tell us chapter and verse on every portfolio company and will tell us you know, what our odds are if we're interested in selling a certain portfolio company and they can tell us uh, what types of add-ons they're looking for. So I think, I think it's caused private equity firms to invest more heavily in business development because they, they now see that it's a, it's a good it's almost essential to be competitive in today's market. I think the other is that we're seeing private equity firms uh, really want to get ahead of situations. So, you know, originally several years ago, the process just was the process. You'd send out books, you'd have meetings, 
you know, then we migrated more towards uh, where people were having fireside chats or early looks on deals to try to, uh, you know, let people sort of get a little bit ahead if, if they have some angle on the deal. Now we're seeing it even a step further where private equity funds are calling on us and saying, hey, what, what's coming up that you're not even in the market with that we might have some angle on that we could start doing work and get smart on it so that when it's time, we can jump on it quickly. Uh, and I think that's being driven by the market's gotten so competitive that a lot of private equity firms are spending a, a tremendous amount of money on diligence on deals and then losing those deals. And, you know, it, for bigger deals, it could easily be several million dollars in, you know, broken deal fees. So I think as a result, they've, they've said, okay, how can we be as proactive as possible to find out if we have an angle on a transaction? And if we do, we want to jump in with both feet and we want to be as aggressive as possible. Uh, and if we don't have an angle, we'll, we, we probably, we might not even take the book on the deal because we don't want to be just another firm competing for another deal because we'll spend a lot of time and money and we, our odds of success are kind of low. So I think we've kind of seen numbers in our processes uh, come down a little bit because people are just being a little more a little smarter and a little more targeted about how they're how they're chasing deals. The last thing I would say is we have seen a lot more interest in uh, private equity firms paying buy side fees, um, and and I'd break those into two two buckets. One is, uh, you know, they're much more interested in if you have some very good industry expertise uh, and can add some value to their diligence process, or maybe you have uh, a relationship with the management team and it's a deal that you're not. The advisor on, or you just you have some angle that you can help them. They're very willing to pay, you know, fairly generous buy side fees to kind of help uh, to have you on their team and help increase their odds of success. We've we've had a couple of those just in the past year, and it seems to be increasing. We're seeing a lot more interest in people just talking about ideas. You know, they want to know if we've pitched something and and didn't get it. They want to know if we've run across any companies we didn't take on. I think everybody's just trying to turn over every rock they can to find opportunities that are are not hyper competitive in today's market. Yeah. Well, you certainly pulled back the uh, the curtain there, so I appreciate your uh, your candidness, some real insight into uh, how things are uh, how things are getting done. Dan, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I would echo a lot of Steve's comments. Um, I think that the relationship between uh, investment banking and, and PE has started to become more, I guess, less transactional and more strategic. Um, over the last few years. And uh, I think, you know, just looking at it purely from a, a sell side perspective, um, we're spending more time upfront um, with our investment banking partners who are helping us think more strategically, um, you know, about just how to navigate challenging environments. You know, we talked about supply chain disruption, the competitive markets, inflation. Um, they're out there talking to everybody. So they have valuable insights that can help us and help us navigate that, that challenging environment. And then, um, you know, also help us shape our businesses for value maximization. I can give you kind of a real-time example um, for one of our portfolio companies we have um, engaged with our, our investment banking partner, just thinking through how do we shape that portfolio of that company? Should we divest this segment? How will strategic buyers view this company without that segment, with the segment? Um, should we focus geographically more looking at doing add-ons in the US? Or should we look at Europe and how will that be perceived um, by potential buyers? So I think that's a, 
a dynamic you're seeing start to evolve and, and will continue to evolve in the future. I uh, appreciate that. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Uh, Dan Laurie with uh, SK Capital and Steve Hunter with TM Capital. Uh, really appreciate my personal relationships with both of you, as well as uh, BDO's relationship with your uh, firms. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join the uh, Perspectives podcast. I'm sure our audience would agree there was plenty of value, info, and, uh, and insight. So thanks again, guys. Likewise, Todd. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Todd. This has been great. We, we appreciate everything that you do uh, to kind of help out the deal community. Yep, my pleasure, guys. Well, it should be an exciting year, and I wish, uh, you know, uh, all the best of luck to, to both of your firms. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Investment banking products and services within the United States are offered exclusively through BDO Capital Advisors, LLC, a separate legal entity, an affiliated company of BDO USA, LLP, a Delaware Limited Liability Partnership, and National Professional Services Firm. For more information, visit BDOCAP.com. Certain services may not be available to attest clients under the rules and regulations of public accounting. BDO Capital Advisors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC.